Last week we began uh, looking at this last section of Ephesians, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6. And you remember that last week we read the entire passage, uh, 10 through 18. I'll do that again, probably every week, just to keep things uh, in their proper context. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do confess how little thought we give to the great realities which Paul talks about here. And yet you have brought it now front and center into our congregational life and to our own lives as individuals. And we pray that uh, your spirit might do a great working in our midst, that as we uh, reflect on these things and learn more about them from your word, that we would be challenged to uh, live more in light of what it says, trusting you at every point, taking up the armor which you provide, and demonstrating the truth of that which is written here. Do these things, we pray, to make your name glorious and to bring honor and glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A handful of you, perhaps, know the, know the name Victor Davis Hanson. And uh, he's an American uh, military uh, historian. He's a columnist. Uh, he's a political essayist and uh, was a classics teacher for some time. Uh, his book, one of his books, is Carnage and Culture. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, examination of why the armies of the West have been the most lethal and effective of any fighting forces in the world. And it's interesting because as he, as he goes into the book, he looks beyond the, the sort of traditional and popular explanations of things like technology and, and geography and, and that kind of thing. And he contends this, that it's Western culture and values, for instance, specifically things like the tradition of descent, the importance placed on inventiveness and uh, adaptation, uh, citizenship, things like that. He says, these things have produced superior arms and soldiers consistently 
in the West. Now, Carnage and Culture does this by looking at nine different major battles across history. Starts with Salamis. He goes to uh, things like Cortez in Mexico, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, and, uh, and six others. And what he does there is he demonstrates that you cannot separate the effectiveness of an army, of an army from the culture of which it's a part. That those two things go hand in glove. And it's a, it's a wonderful study. And he says, those who live in a free society and the armies which come from them always will have an advantage in warfare. Even though these days we think, oh my gosh, the terrorists, you know, they have such a terrible advantage. But in fact, he argues just the opposite. And he wrote this before 2001. One reason this text is so important is precisely because we're looking at a text concerning spiritual warfare. And when you think about it, there's some really uh, unusual but fascinating analogies. We've been set free in Jesus Christ from the slavery that was once ours. So we, in many respects, come from a free culture. God has given us weaponry. He's given us armor. He's given us a way of addressing our enemies that is, in fact, effective because it does come from the hand of God. He will have his people victorious in that warfare. And we do have, as much as we don't often feel it, we do have the advantage. And so it's a wonderful way for us to begin to reflect on the great realities that Paul talks about here. Because spiritual warfare is not the kind of thing that you and I sit down at the dinner table and talk about much. Nor do I suspect do most of us reflect very deeply upon it every day. That the things that come to us, the things that disturb us, the things that we're challenged by, somehow have at their root something spiritual in nature. Who thinks like that? Few of us. And so it's good for us, once again, to be reminded that in fact that is reality. And for those who are God's people, we need more consistently, if we're to be the people God wants us to be, to include that as a major part of the way we think, because it is a major part of the presentation of the scriptures in terms of what we're in the midst of. From Genesis to Revelation, you see an enormous spiritual battle taking place between the forces who hate God and God and his people. Brethren, we're in the middle of it. I want to look at this in, uh, in somewhat in reverse order. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 primarily. And uh, I'm going to kind of begin with verse 12 and work my way backwards because organizationally it just works a little better for my presentation. Uh, that's not saying anything against Paul's presentation, which is inspired, of course, and uh, uh, certainly superior to my own. But uh, uh, my own needs uh, have to work the opposite way. Here Paul uh, goes and does three things. First, he tells us some things about our enemy, who it is we're up against. Secondly, he tells us something about the nature of this warfare, this conflict that we're in. And thirdly, he tells us the fact that we can be victorious and what it is that God has provided for us to stand against the forces of evil. So I'm going to uh, approach it in that, uh, in that order and begin with verse 12. 
Paul has told us in verse 10 that we need to be strong in the Lord. And the reason is found in verse 12. We have an enemy. And he schemes against us. And his name is the devil. The text says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. God's greatest enemy is Satan, the devil. And that makes us his enemy as well, because we are God's people. And if we are God's people, we are also the enemy of Satan, and he is our enemy. The devil is not omnipotent like God is. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. But he is an incredibly powerful adversary. And he must not be underestimated. He is supremely cunning. That's why Paul says in verse 11, he refers to his schemes, his methods. Because when it comes to subverting us, he is an expert. He can, on the one hand, instill doubt about God's goodness. On the other hand, he'll, he'll, he'll frighten you, he'll terrify you with something. And the next thing you know, he'll lull you into complacency, just the other end of the spectrum. You never know where he's coming from. You never know how he's going to attack you. But you can be sure that he will. Because he hates you. You are his enemy as surely as God is. I'm reminded of the, uh, uh, the polar bear. Polar bears are really interesting. You know, their, their primary feed, if they can possibly get it, are seals. So they're always after seals. And sometimes they just, you know, they go after them in the open ocean, you know, so to speak, off the ice flows. Uh, but sometimes uh, they, uh, they do something really sneaky. Seals will sometimes have little holes in the ice flow near the edge of the flow so that they don't have to always be swimming to eat. Right? They can, they can lay on the ice flow near their hole, and when they hear the fish down below, they, dump, they jump through the hole, okay, and they get their fish. They get their lunch or supper or whatever it is they happen to be eating. When polar bears see that hole, they take a big, deep breath of air, they go into the water, under the ice flow, just underneath the hole, and then they scratch the ice with their claws as if they're fish hitting it. The seal thinks dinner is just down below. And they dive through the hole to become dinner. I mean, that is precisely what Satan does to us. He's, he's always scheming. He's always finding a different way of getting at us. And the moment we think we've got him pegged in one corner or one area of our lives, he is busy coming at us from a different direction, fully capable of taking us down. Because he's smarter than we are. He's more powerful than we are. He is a formidable, formidable enemy. So Paul, when he says we're not struggling against flesh and blood, he wants us to understand that this is serious business. Now understand, he's not saying here that somehow we don't ever struggle against flesh and blood. Well, we do. He's not, he's not denying that. But what he wants us to see over and over again is that the spiritual struggles of life are there all the time. Because our enemy is relentless. 
I mentioned last week briefly that it's, it's difficult for us in our own culture to really think like this. Part of it's because our culture is materialistic. It, it just, you know, it, it believes that the only thing that exists is that which you can touch and see is provable by science. It's tangible. Outside of that, nothing is real. Our society is also secular, which basically means it, is, it just embraces that one worldview and doesn't include any other worldviews that have ever existed. And so, for instance, before the Enlightenment, when the spiritual area of life was still considered viable and real and a normal part of how one understood the creation and the world in which they lived, we can't do that anymore. And so when, when we are immersed in a culture like that, it is hard for us to separate and embrace the teaching of Scripture. And so the moment we, we come to the Scripture and we read about the devil, and you may say something like about the devil to uh, your, your unbelieving friends and non-Christian friends, and they, they look at you like you're crazy. Are you getting all upset about this, this, this old man in, a, in red tights and with a pointy tail and, and, and horns on his head? You think you're fighting against that? What's with you? Don't you recognize that the real tangible enemies, the real difficulties, the real struggles in our lives are are with things like poverty and oppression and hunger and social justice? But we're not denying that those things aren't real struggles in this world. They are. And Christians ought to be in the forefront of, of moving in each one of those. And we are to fight against poverty and oppression and social injustice and hunger. But that doesn't mean that we are somehow to deny the teaching of Scripture, which says that the warfare in the spiritual area of our lives is not only reality, but a greater reality than the issues of this life, which, as we all know, will one day pass away. And will be no more. Ever. Notice what Paul says about this warfare. He says it goes on and on and on and on. Jeffrey, did you notice that when we read verse 12, how many times he uses the word against? Why does he do that? He says, you're fighting against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Against, 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 against. It's because Paul wants us to know, you don't just sort of sweep the first one aside and not have to give yourself any concern about the next. It's because it is ongoing. It is relentless. Our enemy absolutely hates us. And in one way or another, he is always going to be coming after us. Now, it's really interesting. A lot of people get hung up on who the, uh, the rulers and the authorities and the powers are and all that other stuff. And you read the, the commentators and, and, you know, they've got ideas here and there. I mean, some of them believe that uh, it refers to a, an organized hierarchy, you know, the rulers and then the authorities and then you go down the, the pecking order. Well, that may be true. Other commentators say, well, it really refers to different areas of life and, and existence that, that they're in control of. Well, that may be true, too. I mean, unfortunately, the text doesn't really tell us. 
But what we do see from the text is that the devil has organized his minions, the demonic hosts, somehow so that they are arrayed against us in an intelligent and, and uh, disciplined fashion. And we must never, ever forget that. The well, second thing that Paul tells us are some things about the conflict itself. He says, we wrestle, we struggle, not against flesh and blood. Now the word struggle or wrestle, whichever one you happen to have uh, in, your, um, in your book, in your Bible, uh, the translators uh, choose uh, different words, but basically it is a description of a wrestler, wrestling, hand-to-hand combat. You know, hand-to-hand combat. The, uh, the, the Spaniards would say mano a mano, right? Man to man. Up close and personal. You smell one another's stinky breath. You feel one another's sweat. You're grappling. It is close combat. And it's serious. It's not just, not just a few points, pat the mat, all over everybody goes home. The devil is here to take us down, and he gets up close and personal to do it. You know, armies tend to fight from a distance, whether they're lobbing arrows, artillery, or shooting bullets. But the devil doesn't like to work that way. The devil likes to get in your face. He likes to get up and just grab you close. Takes hold of your sinful nature. Takes hold of your very flesh and your corruption. And that's how he wants to take you down. That's how he works. And notice what the text also says. That's we struggle. We wrestle. It's one thing if you sort of think, and I think it frankly does not give credence here to, the, to what Paul is saying. You can kind of think, yeah, the devil is against the Christian people or the Christian religion in a, in a general sort of way. Yeah, you know, he's... Paul says, you know what, this is a personal fight. Every single one of us, if you are a person of God, are a target of your enemy. And there's no, no escaping that. He targets you. And it is ongoing. It lasts your entire life. And it only gets worse when you become a believer. Right? We all know that. We blissfully went along before we believed. I mean, we, we kind of drifted with it. It was, you know, we were enslaved to it. It didn't bother us. We weren't, we weren't an issue for him. But when you become a believer, then you're a problem. Because you're working redemptively in the world on behalf of his enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you suddenly become a target because you're now working against him. When you look at the analogy that we have in Scripture of, of God's people when they, were, when they were set free to leave Egypt, when did they have peace? They didn't have any peace until they stepped into the promised land, defeated their enemies there, and then finally the Scriptures tell us there was peace in the land. Or look at the great classic Pilgrim's Progress. How often did he have a chance to rest? Right? I don't care if you're talking about the fact that he comes into Vanity Fair and the next thing you know, 
Things are falling apart. He falls into the, you know, under the influence of giant despair. He gets terrified when he's got to walk between the two chained lions. Event after event after event. He's challenged. He's attacked. He's tempted. And that is our life. There's no way that we can think that because we've dealt with one temptation, we're going to be free of it. Somehow we're just going to kind of sail through. No, it is, it is event after event, temptation after temptation, and God willing, victory after victory, certainly laced with some defeats, some falling, but it is unrelenting. And brethren, who does not get tired? Who does not get tired of that kind of warfare? That kind of always, ongoing, always having to be vigilant, always having to be on the alert. Well, let me give you an encouragement. Take comfort in the fact that you are a wrestler. Because that actually proves that you have two natures within you. The old nature which is dying off and the new nature which is yours through faith in Jesus Christ and through the working of the Holy Spirit which marks you as a Christian, as a true Christian, as belonging to God. There is great comfort in knowing that the warfare comes precisely because you belong to Jesus So wrap your hearts around this promise. There is, the writer of Hebrews tells us, a rest, a place of rest for the people of God. Brethren, it's not on this earth. And you need to be prepared mentally, spiritually, and in every regard for the fact that it is not here. But it will only be when we shuck these mortal bodies and our are brought into the presence of God that our rest will be won and our warfare will be over and we will be exceeding glad finally a response (laughs) I love it it is true well the third thing that Paul tells us is that we we need to be sure that we actually can and will triumph in this lifelong struggle. To overcome our enemy in the power of the Spirit, we need to remain confident in God and and determined never to accept defeat. I found a fascinating uh, illustration of this uh, from the Korean War. Apparently, the uh, the enemy was advancing on a uh, uh, on a particular company, a baker company, and uh, and actually had them surrounded and cut off. And, uh, and, and the larger unit was, uh, was desperately trying to get in touch with them uh, by radio. And they kept trying and trying and trying, and they didn't hear anything, and they were really beginning to worry. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, the corpsman says, uh, he says, Baker Company, do you read me? And the guy from Baker says, uh, this is Baker Company. And, uh, and so the corpsman says, well, what's your circumstance? What's your situation? He says, well, says the enemy's on the north of us, the enemy's on the south of us, the enemy's on the east of us, and the enemy's on the west of us. And then after a brief pause, uh, he says, 
The enemy's not going to get away from us now. I mean, instead of thinking defeat, instead of thinking I have to give in, we have to surrender. This man from Baker Company recognized that he wasn't going to think like that. He was thinking of victory. And this is precisely how we have to, have to uh, what our mindset has to be. Because you, you know there are times when you feel so beaten down, so tired, so heavy and burdened by it all. You just don't want to fight anymore. But Paul says, you have to. Because God has given you armor precisely for that. But I want to make a brief remark here, and it's the reason that I included our text from Second uh, Peter. Uh, there is a, there is a certain there are certain graces in our lives that we need to be able to uh, to have a clear conscience that we're pursuing so far as it lies within us to do so. So that as those people, when we put on the full armor of God, we are confident that we're doing so as the kind of people He would have us be. Peter writes there this. In verses 5 through 7, he says, Make every reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. See, the simple fact of the matter is, is that as as people who belong to Jesus Christ, we are to be a certain kind of person. And this reflects the sort of graces that are ours and ought to be growing in our lives. And we ought to be diligent, so far as it lies within us to do so, to, to be able to pursue these things, to increase them in our lives, to take up the opportunities to exercise them. And it's as we do that as God's people that, that we can, with a clear conscience and with every hope, take the armor that he has supplied us and put it on. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because to put these on means to put them on permanently. The same way that you have these, these permanent graces of love, of self-discipline, Perseverance. The armor is is permanent as well. It's it's not like a soccer uniform that you put on to play the game and you take off again and throw in the washer. No, it 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 is a permanent acquisition. These things are to be on us all the time. And the reason is not... It's not far to consider. If you've got an enemy who's at you all the time, the last thing you want to be is like a town that's suddenly attacked while everybody is sound asleep and their, their weapons are, you know, outside in the closet. All of a sudden people are up and running, looking for their bow, looking for their gun, looking for their club, whatever it happens to be, while their enemy's beating them to death. No, we have to have the armor on all the time. Because one of Satan's favorite tactics is sneak attack. To get you when you're not looking. To attack you when you're not thinking about it. It is wearing this armor that Paul says enables us to stand firm. 
This is just a, a, a military term, which means to be able to hold a critical position when you're under attack. To defend yourself and even to be the aggressor if necessary in order to throw off the enemy. We're reminded of, uh, of our Lord as he spoke to the uh, embattled church of Theotira in uh, Revelation 2. He says, hold fast till I come. With every intent that we will do that. Because we have the capacity to do that. God's armor is totally adequate for our need. Totally adequate. But we have to believe that. We have to embrace it. We have to put it on. And then to exercise those things that God calls us to do. The army of Alexander the Great was advancing on Persia. And at one critical point, it appeared that the troops might be uh, defeated because the soldiers had apparently gotten weighed down with all the spoils of war. They were dragging them here and dragging them there, and, and, and suddenly Alexander recognized that, uh, that they were a weaker army because of it. And so he commanded that all those things, whatever it was, be brought, put in a big pile, and he burned it much to the disgust of some of his soldiers. Now, I mean, the spoils of war were, were part of what they would take as, as their, as their uh, spo- well, at any rate. But then one, one man wrote this. He says, It was as if wings had been given to them, and they walked lightly again, and victory was assured. In other words, when they weren't any longer encumbered by their cares for all the spoils that they had won, they were free to fight again. Really free. And as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we must rid ourselves of anything and everything that hinders us in the conflict against our enemy. And that enables us to put on that full armor of God, to be the people that we are to be. And in this world to demonstrate that he has in fact overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, reminding us that we are uh, your soldiers, as it were, in this great conflict. We pray that you would uh, not allow us to be frightened by it, but that we would take uh, seriously the nature of that conflict. And that we would at every point also take up that which you have given us to combat it. We want to glorify you. We want our lives to demonstrate the great realities that the scriptures speak of. We pray that you would enable us to do this for the glory of our Savior. And as part of his ultimate victory. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.